The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of New York Presbyterian Hospital or Columbia University Irving Medical Center. You're listening to Taking It to Heart with the Columbia Valve Team, a podcast where we discuss the advancements in treatments for patients with structural heart and valve disease. I'm your host, Dr. Isaac George. Welcome to the next episode of Taking It to Heart. I'm your host, Isaac George. We have our group of Valve Center physicians, including Dr. Vinnie Boppett, Director of Mitral and Tricuspid Therapies, Dr. Torsten Vall, Director of Translational Research, Dr. Omar Kalik, Director of Multimodality Imaging, and Dr. Tamim Nazif, Director of Clinical Services. So we have a great topic today. We're going to talk about MAC, patients who have severe MAC. Um, this, is a, this is a terrible thing when you get into the operating room and you realize that your straightforward mitral replacement is going to be a very difficult case because of MAC. We see MAC in patients who have aortic valve disease, uh, who are doing transcatheter aortic valve replacements on, and then now as a dedicated pathology with patients who have mitral stenosis and such severe MAC that they're not surgical, they're being sent for possible transcatheter options. So I want to start out by seeing if we can define the problem and define what kind of imaging and classification schemes that we've been proposed out there. So maybe Omar or, uh, or Vinny can talk about some of the work that you guys have been doing in defining MAC and what we've been using uh, both imaging-wise and characteristics-wise to understand how this affects how we treat them. Yeah, so I think um, from the imaging standpoint, there's a lot to be done. Um, obviously, great work has been done so far, starting with the, uh, the, the mitral trial. But uh, the, uh, the issue is that, you know, a standard CT reporting will, may just say mild, moderate, severe MAC. But it's for these procedures, we need much more delineation, including the circumference, the thickness in both, uh, you know, kind of short axis and uh, long axis views, um, what affects anchoring, whether there's calcium on the aortic mitral curtain, which is often spared, whether there's calcium at the commissures, the trigones. So I think uh, we need to be much more descriptive um, on these uh, mitral annular calcific lesions. Um, and that's not even mentioning the sizing, um, which uh, uh, Vinny can talk about more. So Vinny, tell us, uh, yeah, you're petting, you're petting your belly, I know. So tell us about the MAC that you typically see. Um, you know, posterior, trigones, anterior leaflet. Can you kind of give us a scheme of how, how common is it in, in these areas? So it's a, it's a very interesting age-old problem. The first MAC, which was ever documented, interestingly, uh, was in an Egyptian mummy uh, 2,500 years ago. Uh, the relevance of MAC, as Dr. George has mentioned, is when it's associated with mitral pathology. Uh, we always looked at MAC when we started treating it with transcatheter waves. It's like a ring. Uh, if you look at, uh, we have a lot of experience of doing these transcatheter valves in a mitral ring, and essentially the classification should reflect that. For example, if the MAC is circumferential, it acts as a complete ring. But if it is too rigid, then it's not going to accommodate a circular valve. 
But at the same time, if it's too flexible, that means it's KZS Mac, for example, as we know, then it allows more expansion and then the valve may come loose. So all the so-called clinically relevant classifications are trying to focus on this is one, what is the circumference it involves? Other, as Dr. Kalikia said, what is now the depth of the MAC or the width of the MAC? More importantly, commissural involvement, because that's the most lateral area, which tends to be the last one to get incorporated into a new formed circle. And lastly, and most importantly, I think, is uh, how do we size for these? So all the clinically relevant classifications uh, are probably going to reflect on that. So, Omar, how do you take away uh, the, the primary imaging modality? Do you prefer CT? And what do you get out of a TEE? And, and what are the limitations of TEE? So, I, I, I think um, so far the primary modality has been CT. And there are probably two reasons for that. Number one, it's much easier for an interventionalist to look at than an echo. Um, and number two is there are many more... Unless they've passed their echo boards like Dr. Vall and <laughs> Dr. Nazif, though, right? Uh, I'm, I'm excluding the echo interventional experts here, but uh, <clears throat> the other reason is that, you know, in the CT field, since, you know, with programs like 3Mencio and Circle, there's been a big push for semi-automated and automated workflows, which make it very easy and very intuitive on, on how to analyze these cases. That's not been the case in Echo, and, and you know, the, the companies, uh, Echo software companies, are lagging way behind in that regard. So in terms of what you get out of each one, CT you know, will visualize calcium much better than TE, um, but due to the lower temporal resolution of CT, it's much harder to see the leaflet tissue at the appropriate time point, which may be a factor in anchoring as well. On TE, especially 3D, you see fibrotic tissue very well. It's a little harder to differentiate between, you know, true calcium and, and fibrosis. I think that's a great point because I often look at TEs and see bright everywhere. And it's along the leaflet. It's along the annulus. You know, these are, these are difficult patients. These are often sick patients. A lot of times we see them in the setting of AS. Uh, torsion. So let's say you have an older patient who has severe AS and moderate MS with MAC. What do you tell that patient in terms of what their progression of disease will be for the mitral disease once you treat their aortic? To be happy that this patient only has moderate mitral stenosis uh, because it will allow me to focus mainly on the aortic with a transcatheter treatment and then medical management, which comes down to a heart rate control typically for the uh, moderate mitral stenosis. However, as you know, not all these patients uh, progress at the same route. And I think so age and other comorbidities become an important become an important factor. If this is a younger patient, overall, I would say at intermediate surgical risk, I will actually tell this patient that we should have a very thorough discussion with the surgeon and maybe combined surgical treatment early on is better than waiting for them to become high-risk candidates uh, with severe mitral stenosis when they are at an age where an operation is very, very difficult versus treating them earlier and then just having to do a mitral valve in valve, which we now can do very, very easily and safely with a transeptal procedure. On the other hand, um, if the patient, you know, is, is very old and, and fragile, then I think the, the moderate mitral disease just becomes secondary. 
Yeah, we've been talking a lot uh, about Mac and why it's a problem. Why, Vinny, can you explain for the non-surgeons among us, when, when you see this in the OR, why is it such a problem to deal with? Uh, so there are uh, two main issues. Uh, one is uh, MAC, as you know, is very it's a severely calcified disease. So taking sutures around it becomes hard. And if, say, for example, uh, you may not be able to pass the sutures at all, and then you leave gaps which can lead to leaks. Uh, if you can pass the sutures, sometimes it can disrupt it, and it can cause uh, most catastrophic condition uh, called left ventricular and atrial dissociation, uh, which we most surgeons dread. And the third important thing which we don't focus on is the size of surgical valve we'll be implanting. For example, the calcification occupies too much space, then we are going to leave the patient with a smaller valve. And this is where the real role of transcatheter valve comes in, makes the procedure easy, less complicated, and at the same time gives the patient a larger valve area. So let's go now to transcatheter therapies. There are established procedures that we've been performing for the last five to six years that have been pioneered, I think, by Dr. Myra Guerrera and, and now adopted by a number of centers using a balloon expandable valve in the mitral position, both from a number of access routes. So starting transeptal, transapical, uh, direct open surgical, uh, as well as even from a left thoracotomy, <clears throat> right thoracotomy, I apologize. So all of these are potential options. How do we start out by sizing these patients? So we get the CT scans. Omar, go, go through what you would look for in the CT scan with exact dimensions. Are we looking at area or perimeter? Uh, are we measuring and defining what a maximum commissure-to-commissure dimension is, is going to be as a, as a risk factor for anchoring? Um, I want to say a couple things. Before I go to that, I want to go back to one of Torsten's comments about the post-TAVR population. So I think one major issue is that I think we underestimate the mitral stenosis in a lot of these patients where we perform TAVR. So in our, in our group, we're very aggressive on looking at the mitral stenosis uh, starting from the TTE prior to TAVR. And, you know, when I was in medical school, we were taught, it's one of those completely wrong things you're taught in medical school, which you, 10 years later, the paradigm is totally different. I was taught that severe MAC never causes clinical disease, but clearly that's not the case. And what we see in a lot of these is very low. What medical school is that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It, it was before your time, but... <laughs> but uh, what, what we often see is, is on these... these you know, valve area planimetry on the mitral in the severe range with very low transmitral gradients because of a low flow state from MS and AS. And often once we do the TAVR, the transmitral gradients often rise. Um, so it's a masked kind of gradient in the mitral. <clears throat> That's a great point. That's a great point. The AS-MS patients, you know, may be, may be masked and, and hidden, and then the disease gets much worse because the gradient gets much worse, obviously. Yes, yeah, so I think we, we need to raise our index of suspicion for those, number one. In terms of the sizing, you know, we don't fully know. Um, in, in, you know, in addition to all the factors that Vinny and I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> you know, I think we go by the area inside the calcium, uh, which is often probably larger than the true area inside the fibrotic leaflets, uh, which, which always measures a little smaller. These are often very elliptical. Um, and, you know, I think the commissure to commissure dimension is important in terms of sealing 
and paravalvular leak. Um, so if you have the same area on two patients, but a much larger C-to-C dimension on one with, uh, with no anterior calcium, um, I think that's a risk factor for leak and embolization. So as a group, guys, do you think a transcatheter valve in the aortic or a surgical valve in the aortic position provides anchoring for the anterior annulus? Because oftentimes we see posterior MAC, but we don't see anterior MAC, and then we, all, we have a prosthesis in the aortic position. Is that sufficient to anchor? Uh, definitely. Uh, it uh, not only allows anchoring, but again, uh, prevents that uh, too much anterior displacement. However, in these patients, you have to have commissural calcification and posterior calcification. So you need then becomes, it becomes a 360-degree anchor. I think what this points out is that the procedural planning, the imaging planning of these procedures is much more intensive. It's not just a simple area calculation like it frequently is with TAVR these days. Rather, it's a much more complicated assessment of the circumferential extent of the calcium. And is there, for example, a TAVR surgical valve uh, to anchor anteriorly? What's the sizing? The sizing can be complex. It's a non-circular structure. And we haven't even spoken yet about measuring the neo-LVOT and looking at the potential for, for obstruction there. So it's a much more um, intensive and complicated planning that needs to be done really with, with specialists in this type of imaging. So agree, you know, these are all things that we're learning. Um, using perimeter seems to be the way to go now, using an LVO, neo-LVOT of 150 or more, but maybe indexing that to patient size and, and ejection fraction and, uh, and RVOT may be something that's more clinically relevant. Let's go through a procedure, a transeptal procedure from start to finish. So uh, can someone take me through a transeptal sapien and MAC? Sure. So the concept is that you are going to cross the mitral valve in an antegrade fashion and implant a transcatheter valve, a valve that would have, for example, initially been used in a transapical uh, TAVR procedure. The access route is through the femoral vein. One then crosses through the IVC to the right side of the heart. A transeptal puncture is uh, uh, performed. We've learned a lot about the optimal sort of location uh, and techniques, I think, through this for, for the transeptal punctures. Uh, you then place a wire into the left ventricle, a stiff wire. You use your transcatheter system with the, the valve, again, mounted in an in a antegrade uh, orientation. Uh, advance that up uh, across the septum, across the native calcified mitral valve. This has become uh, much easier with the newest iterations of the, of the transcatheter valve systems, which have much greater flexibility and it's much easier to, to traverse these structures. Uh, positioning is then uh, performed by seeing the plane of the calcium across the mitral annulus, uh, lining up the, the base of the valve uh, in reference to that, and then a deployment under rapid pacing, much like you'd perform a balloon expandable TAVR procedure. Uh, there are um, also uh, frequently benefits to having additional imaging support, for example, from TE in this type of procedure. Anyone additional thoughts, comments, procedural trips, t uh, tips and tricks and techniques? Well, we often tend to oversize these valves much more than we than we have to in in TAVR procedures. So one of the things to understand beforehand is always 
how much volume we'll actually have to add to these valves. One of the advantages with um, the Sapien 3 valve is that there are no more commissural posts and we can keep overexpanding uh, the valve by just adding uh, more volume to a much larger degree. And uh, uh, as we pointed out at the, at the beginning, um, this, this system was initially not developed for this and we and find ourselves often deploying these valves in annuli that at least numerically are larger than what the valve was intended for in the aortic position. Okay, oftentimes positioning is difficult. Second valves may be needed, um, but overall good results and very high-risk patients. Uh, mortality rates have been coming down. Vinny, can you take us through what your technique is for an open sapien and MAC? Again, patients have to be operable. You get to the operating room and take us through how you, uh, how you use a, a valve to, to fix this. So the most important thing uh, during surgery is uh, that you can cut the anterior mitral leaflet, uh, which is the main culprit in causing LVOT obstruction. Uh, the second thing is you take as many sutures as possible around the whole circumference. And many times it's possible to take at least uh, four or five or six sutures, and this just aids your anchoring uh, of the collar, which we are going to create around the sapien valve. Do you think balloon sizing is useful in an open case? So balloon sizing, in fact, is mandatory. Uh, we learned that uh, through our early experience that what we were doing was oversizing these annuli. Um, we completely forgot that these are rigid, brittle calcifications, and then if we oversize too much, they can actually lead to, again, what is known as annular rupture. Uh, so what we do now is we tend to size them with a smaller size valve, which is a 26 size valve. And if that balloon fits snug or well, then we are going to use a 26 size valve with a Teflon collar around it. And that gives you much better uh, match between the native annulus and the valve. Uh, if that balloon is loose, uh, then we go to the next size, which is 29. And then we can see how that fits and interacts and then again put some Teflon and then implant this device. Uh, the main challenge comes in surgical implantation is that as the balloon starts inflating, you don't see the posterior aspect of the device and hence a very good coordination between the first operator who is visualizing and positioning and the second who is on the syringe is critical in open cases. Once you finish that, you check, there's no obvious leakage. If there is, you can put an additional stitch or then just use those initial four or six stitches to pass through that Teflon collar and just give a secondary anchoring. So that's a great description of the technique, Vinny. Maybe you and Isaac could explain in what setting do you choose to do a transcatheter transeptal versus an open procedure? There are a couple of situations that <clears throat> uh, an open surgical procedure may be better. One is patients, the, the most obvious and the most common is patients who have a small LVOT. So if patients don't have adequate LVOT clearance, then they're mandatory that they should have surgery. Within surgery, we take out that anterior leaflet as Vinny's describing, and that provides enough full LVOT clearance for flow to be unimpeded. The second is if you don't have circumferential calcium. If you don't have enough calcium to anchor, what we do in surgery is actually, as Vinny described, put sutures in, not really into the annulus or into that calcified portion, but we put it into remnant leaflet tissue. 
The leaflet is often very retracted and tethered and fibrotic in addition to the calcium in the annulus, but it holds sutures and it holds sutures well enough. The primary anchoring is still by the radial force of the valve, but that leaflet tissue actually fills in small gaps and prevents PVL and prevents motion as well. Um, and so that, that actually still helps uh, keep the valve in place. In addition, if you don't have calcium along a, a large portion of your annulus, you can put in regular mitral valve sutures, and those sutures then go into the base frame uh, of the skirt of your, uh, of your sapien. So you can anchor through. You can have a lot of different kinds of anatomies and pathologies that you can treat with, and you can deal with almost any kind of anatomic issue from a surgical standpoint. The only thing that you can't deal with is an annulus that's wildly too large. So once we start getting annuli area or perimeters, annuli area above 1,000 or uh, perimeters well over 100, then we start to really worry because you're, you're expanding a valve so much that you're going to start to get more than mild central leak, and the valve may not be stable. The other thing that we can do concomitantly is treat other valve disease. We can also take out portions of the septum to do a septomyectomy to improve uh, flow. Um, we can deal with paravalvular leak as we see it and as it comes. But it's not perfect. There's no question that patients have to undergo an operation. They're oftentimes associated with comorbidities that are very significant. Patients have COPD. Patients have lung disease, renal disease, and other problems. And, and so they have to be able to get through an operation. The nice thing about mitral, mitral stenosis patients um, is that their ventricles are, in general, good. They have good function. They're hypertrophic. They have small cavities, which can sometimes be a little bit difficult to manage postoperatively. All of a sudden, the ventricle is getting a lot of preload, um, which it's not been used to. And so you have to keep up with their volume requirements. But that, can, that usually allows you to, to have a very smooth operative course and postoperative course afterwards because their function is good. The difficult patients are the patients who have severe, MAC, severe MR and dilated LVs. It makes for a nice procedure because the LV is, is large, but those patients can be much more difficult to manage postoperatively. All right, this has been a great session. Wonderful insights. You know, difficult valve problems. Some of the probably the most difficult set of patients that we have, valve and MAC, and patients with MAC, uh, excluding our our TR patients, who um, uh, we'll talk about as well. So great discussion. Uh, I'm going to sign off here, and we'll see you with the next podcast.